0: Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of On Deck with Halen Belay, a tarot podcast about getting out of your cards and into your real life. I'm very pleased to be talking to you today from my own home. I am no longer in COVID quarantine. Uh, You might still hear me sound a little bit sick. I apologize for that, but I am testing negative. I am feeling a lot better and I'm ready to get back into the swing of things. I do want to say a thank you here at the top of the show for everyone who sent in their support and well wishes while I was sick. I'd also like to send a super special thank you to those of you who have been supporting the show so far in its first few episodes. I haven't really been promoting the show a ton. I'm still giving myself a little bit time to polish it and get it exactly where I want it before I really announce to the world. And so those of you who are listening now are getting the very first glimpse, the very first sneak peek into what this show could be. And I am really excited and really honored to have you along for that journey. Those of you who have already sent in feedback, thank you so much. Especially at this really early stage, getting that kind of feedback is so so beyond useful. If you haven't had a chance, cut. If you haven't sent in feedback yet, I wanted to... If you haven't sent in feedback yet, I have good news for you. Starting this week, in addition to accepting written submissions from listeners, I'll also be accepting voice memos from listeners. You can send these messages straight from your phone or your computer. It's super easy. You don't need to add an account or sign up for anything. If you want to send in a voice message, you can do so by visiting the website ondeck.halen.co or going straight to callin.halen.co, C-A-L-L-I-N dot. Halen.co, and that will take you straight to the page to submit your voice memo. Not every voice message will be played on the show, but if you have a question, comment, concern, your voice might be played on a future episode, so do take the time to check that out. Now, for this week's episode, I want to take a step back and talk about some pretty basic 101 stuff. As you all know the point of this podcast is to take the practice of tarot out of the theoretical and into the practical realm so this week to that end i'm going to be sharing with you all my five top tips for what to do after a tarot reading what you can actually do at the end of a reading to use the cards that you've just pulled use the insight that you've just gleaned in order to actually move forward all five of these strategies actually start off with the same sort of base strategy all five of these strategies start with the same base strategy which is choosing a key card or a main signifier from your spread now what the key card for your spread will be is going to depend obviously on you and what you choose to pull but let's say for example you've pulled uh, some cards you're asking a question about decision that you're trying to make or something that you need to do in the future and you've pulled some cards representing you representing your situation and representing things you should or shouldn't do things that would help or hurt the situation from that spread any one of those cards could be our key card really all by key card in this context is the card that feels the most evocative to you of what you need to remember in order to act on this wisdom. So I'll give an example from a recent reading I did for a client. This client had a pretty classic pattern show up in their spread, which was that the card representing what was blocking them from moving forward, what was keeping them from progressing, was the card death reversed. For those of you who don't know, death is a card that represents change, and although reversals are complicated and have a lot of different meanings, it's pretty safe to read a reversed death card as a fear of or a resistance to some kind of necessary or transformative change. So for this particular client, they pulled cards, we talked about what the cards meant, and the thing that felt the most evocative, the thing that we kept circling back to, was this idea of a fear of change, a resistance to change being a common theme on different areas of this person's life and being something that really was operating as a blocker. It was keeping them from moving forward. There were other cards in this spread that were about aspirational things, things they should stretch towards and that they should do more of. But for this person, the death card was the most compelling card they saw in that spread. It was the strongest image to them. There's a couple of reasons why a card might stand out to us more than others. Something like the death card, for example, is called the death card, which immediately is going to trigger our brains, our nervous systems to have a stronger reaction than we would to say the two of swords, which doesn't necessarily have the same kind of compelling, strong association in our minds major arcana cards in general but especially cards like death and the devil judgment the moon these are cards that people tend to have even stronger reactions to stronger relationships to and that can often be the sort of bedrock insight or information that someone gleans from a spread centered around one of those major arcana cards but of course a a card does not have to be a major arcana card to stand out to someone or to be particularly compelling Sometimes the thing that makes the card really compelling or stand out to somebody is the fact that it reflects something about their current situation or about themselves that they didn't realize was true. Something that is novel or a new understanding, a reframing that changes their understanding of the entire situation. So that might be the card that somebody chooses as their key card, their key signifier, the main thing they want to take away from this spread. It also may be the case that someone feels a strong reaction to a card based on the iconography, based on the literal images of the card. There's something in the visual metaphor and symbolism of that card that really speaks to them. There's also a tendency to privilege cards that are in placements like here's what you should do to benefit the situation, or here's what you should avoid to not harm the situation those kinds of cards also tend to be more likely to be those key signifying cards because if we have a spread where one card is describing a situation and another card is describing what you should do about that situation, not always and not for everyone, but in many circumstances people find the second card, what should I do about the situation, to be more useful. Again, there's many situations where that might not be the case. Like I said, someone might have that first card describe something about a situation that really unlocks something for them. What matters is, what matters about choosing your key card is not so much why you choose it, how you choose it, the justifications for choosing it. What matters is that you feel that card and the images or meanings of that card has some kind of weight for you. Now, in a lot of situations, that might not be a card that you feel especially positive about. Generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, we come to our tarot decks when we're in some kind of stress, we have some kind of issue, and more often than not, in my experience at least, when I'm doing readings for myself or for somebody else, the theme of the spread that comes out is something along the lines of you have to do the hard thing that you don't want to do that's a cheat sheet for tarot in general (laughs) it's probably saying you have to do the hard thing you don't want to do it's part of why it's such a useful projective test because once you see the thing that you don't want to do it's really hard to ignore the thing you don't want to do and why it's so important to do. For example, the person who pulled death in that context was really not looking forward to (laughs) embodying the energy of the death card. That was not something that sounded very positive or exciting for them, but it did feel important and it did feel compelling. So let's say you've chosen a key card from your spread. You've picked the card that's going to be your main takeaway. Now we can get into the actual five strategies themselves what you can do with that card when you step away from your deck that will allow you to continue to benefit from the insight and information you got from the tarot long after you've left your deck behind. We're going to go through this numbered list in order of intensity, essentially. So how difficult it is, how challenging it is, how much support you might need or resources or skills you might want to develop in order to do them. The first one, simplest one, easiest one, least challenging, is to put the card the key card that you've identified on your mirror on a bathroom mirror on a like vanity mirror somewhere that you look at every day preferably sometime early in the day or multiple times a day you can also put the card in a wallet in a planner again just anywhere that you'll be able to see it regularly I would encourage you, if you are very precious about your tarot cards, to keep them in the house. Unless you have a deck that can comfortably fit into a wallet or something like that, it is risky to take your cards away from the rest of the deck and potentially lose them out in the big wide world. But if you are just taping them to your bathroom mirror or leaving them in a display place on your altar, what we're looking for here is the same kind of logic as a vision board. We're putting something that we want, that we'd like to remind ourselves of in a place where it's going to give us a visual cue, a visual reminder of that thing so that we can keep our background train of thought coming back to that concept and that idea. So it's not so much that you have to sit and meditate on that card every time you pass by it, although of course, if you wanna do that, that will not hurt. It's more so that having that little reminder ambiently in the background of your life can be a really useful way of keeping that information and that insight top of mind and making it a little bit easier to start practicing, putting that insight into, to start actually putting that insight into practice. Option two for what you can do with that key card. This is a really effective one. If you are someone who doesn't really like to journal is more of a visual processor than a verbal one redrawing or recreating the imagery of the card in your own interpretation can be a really useful way of again deepening your relationship to the card and what it represents so what i mean by that is taking the version of the card that was in your original spread maybe researching other versions of what the card looks like thinking about the symbolism and iconography of the card thinking about in your own life the kinds of symbols and images that remind you of that card's energy. taking all of these things and channeling them into a recreation a reproduction of the tarot card that is based on your specific understanding and relationship to it and this is obviously something that takes a little bit more time and effort than just sticking a card on your bathroom mirror but it doesn't have to be so involved as sitting down and doing an elaborate art project You can do versions of this that are just little sketches on notepaper. And in fact, if you are the kind of person who finds this method of reflection really useful, then I would encourage you actually to draw this image as many times as you can, in as many variations as you can, as quickly as you can, as casually as you can, right? To develop a relationship to this image and this iconography that's not precious, right? That's intuitive and can kind of flow. Similarly to the idea of putting the card in your background and helping it be part of your background ambient visual noise. We're thinking about how we can incorporate the ideas, the imagery, the insight of this card into our regular day to day lives. Now option three is a little bit less effort than option two in terms of how much energy expenditure it takes, but it's a little bit more vulnerable, which is why I've placed it lower on the list. And that is meditation. Now, in an ideal circumstance, this would be a guided meditation, where someone is actually walking you through a visualization of the imagery and iconography related to that card. In the absence of having a guided meditation, someone to actually lead you through that dialogue, you can still get a tremendous amount of benefit just from walking yourself through your own visualization of, again, the cards and the images in that card. So for example, when I teach yoga classes or when I do embodied tarot sessions with people where I'm reading their cards and then guiding them through some gentle movement or body work related to those cards, right? A lot of what I'm doing in those circumstances is looking at the iconography of the card, feeling through the energy of that card, the sentiments of that card, and then creating a sort of narrative, a journey to go on that involves almost like stepping into the painting of that card and then stepping back out. So what I mean by that is if I was going to guide somebody in meditation, I would start off by helping them to relax and settle into their body and get comfortable. And then typically what I do is guide people through a visualization of leaving the physical space they're currently in, going to and imagining in rich detail a An imaginary place, another place that is populated with the images and sensations of that car, And then intentionally, just as slowly as we, we went into things, taking that person out of meditation and guiding them back through a visualization to their body. Now the nature of that meditation and that visualization can be anything you want it to be. There's not any specific right or wrong answer for how you adapt and translate these images. When I've taught versions of this or led people through versions of this meditation in the past, let's say through a card, like the high priestess, there have been times where I've led people through a visualization where they find themselves in a lush forest standing in a river walking under a waterfall and encountering a version of the high priestess the higher self that is in this watery sort of secrets cavernous environment but i've also done versions of this meditation where i'm leading people through encountering the high priestess in a starry skyscape in a cosmos of swirling stars and light i could imagine versions of that meditation where i'm sinking to the bottom of the ocean to encounter the high priestess or entering a resplendent temple any one of these visualizations could be very useful for helping me to sink more deeply into my relationship to and the ideas that i connect to what that card is Option four for what to do with your key card is to do something active with your body. This is an extension of the meditation suggestion. I mentioned earlier that I do embodied tarot sessions with people and there's sessions where in addition to pulling cards and doing a meditation, there's typically some kind of movement component. Now, why would there be a movement component? What's the purpose of that? There is a lot of learning that we do through our bodies. We get really stuck on the idea that we learn from our brains, but our physical body makes up a huge portion of our nervous system. There's so much of our nervous system that's not located in our frontal cortex where our conscious thought is happening. And especially when we're talking about something that has to do with our emotional or spiritual well-being, how often do you hear people say some version of, I know that intellectually, but I don't feel it emotionally. You can understand something intellectually, It doesn't necessarily mean that you can embody it so that's the idea behind embodied terror so in addition to doing meditation which is usually what closes the practice there will typically be some period of time where we're doing some form of movement a self-body work something like that and that could be anything from a yoga flow a brief self massage a walking meditation there's lots of different directions that can go when you're thinking about doing this in your own practice in your own life Doing something that involves your body doesn't necessarily have to mean doing something that looks or feels like exercising. Take for example, the card of the sun. The sun is a card that I think about a lot when I do my walking meditations, because the sun is a very powerful card for me, I have a very strong relationship to it, and specifically to the idea of pleasure and pain, failure and success, all of these things being temporary. Right? You know, one of the things that the sun has always implied for me is that even though it's this amazing, wonderful, shiny car, you know, the sun comes up and the sun goes down. And so there will be times where the sun is shining on us and they're wonderful and lovely and we should enjoy them because there will also be times where the shade falls on us. And those will be sad, difficult times that we can get through by knowing the sun will shine on us again. So when i do my walking meditations i frequently am thinking about the sun both literally the sun overhead and what the sun is touching but also thinking about the sun spiritually metaphorically and really focusing my attention and my awareness on looking around me at not just beautiful things so allowing myself to notice That's a very beautiful flower on this sidewalk. It's so gorgeous. That color, the way it's swaying in the breeze, I'm in love with it. And also it's growing out of a crack in a sidewalk that's dirty or messed up in some way, or it's next to a dead bird that got run over, whatever it is that is in your environment that is not pleasant to look at. And to take that opportunity to practice, right, can I stay equally present in my body for the pleasure of looking at this flower and the displeasure of looking at this bird carcass, for example? It's not to say that the bird carcass also gives me pleasure, right, but can I look at this thing, accept that it is not pleasurable, and not feel the need to leave my body to ignore that thing, to run away from it? So that's something that I might do, a physical action I might do if I drew the sun card and was feeling like I needed some extra effort or help to put it into practice. I might go take myself on a walk and practice actually, as the sun does, shining my gaze on everything, regardless of how beautiful or how pleasing it is to me, regardless of how beautiful or pleasing it is to me. So you can do a movement practice that involves coming to a yoga mat or some kind of exercise. You can do a movement practice that involves being out in the world, in nature. But you can also just do a movement practice that involves some kind of sensuality or creativity, some kind of embodiedness that, again, matches up with the energy you're trying to call in from the card that you've identified. So let's say that you have the page of cups or some other card that has a lot of implications of childishness, of being comfortable with failure, learning by doing, experimenting, trusting your emotional wisdom, allowing yourself to grow and develop. For someone who has the page of cups as the card they're trying to call in and invite more of into a movement practice, their movement practice might be something like finger painting or getting oil pastels from the art store and just deciding, I don't care about whether or not this turns out good. I just want to see what it turns out like. It could also be something like taking a bath, something that's restorative for your body. It doesn't just have to be an action of expenditure. What I'm really trying to emphasize and draw your attention to with this one is that the tarot does not have to live in the realm of symbols and images and ideas. It can also live in our actual experience, the actual movement of our physical bodies, whether that's for the purpose of exercise and expenditure or the purpose of rest and recuperation or the purpose of creativity and expression really anything that we do with our bodies really anything that we do with our bodies the final suggestion the one that i am considering the most advanced for today's purposes is to do spell work with your tarot card now this one i put at the bottom of the list because if you are a brand new baby witch you might not want to start with something like doing spell work with a tarot card spell work in general just involves a lot more focused intention cultivation to be prepared for the work of spell work than something like doing some meditation, which is not necessarily as risky because you're intuiting rather than manifesting. Intuiting, going inward, is not the same kind of dangerous as manifesting or making things external. And most spell work is about manifesting, making something external or, or making, producing some kind of effect, shall we say. So in this case i would say to use this strategy use this option very sparingly and very intentionally if you're going to do spell work with a card it should be a card that you have a strong relationship to a spread that you have a strong understanding of and spell work that you feel really comfortable in not the very first time you've done any kind of spell work but a type of spell that you feel very comfortable and confident in stepping forward in now there's a lot of different ways that you might construct that spell work there's plenty of spells that involve using tarot cards in conjunction with candles or altars there are even some spells that involve the destruction or damage of those tarot cards so you might need to get a backup deck for doing that spell work if you don't want to damage your original deck that you use for daily reading that you use for regular reading but really the type of spell work that you do is going to depend on the card that you're pulling the purposes that you're trying to achieve and your own relationship to a practice of spell work and witchcraft in your life. In my own life, I personally choose to be very judicious about my spell work. I don't do spell work super, super often. Um, It's something that I save for occasions when I feel very strongly that it's an appropriate thing to do. One of those times was when I got my tattoo, which is of the tarot card strength. And I think this is a pretty solid illustration of what I was talking about in saying that any card that you use for that kind of spell work should be a card that you have a relationship to in some way. Strength is a card that I absolutely have a relationship to. You'll probably be hearing me talk about it many, many times. (laughs) Strength is a card that I have done every single one of these five strategies with. I'm actually looking right now at a watercolor painting that I made of the strength card that's like very much in line with the movement practice suggestion that I made. And I'm looking at the tattoo on my arm, which is of the strength card. And specifically is of a lion with a unseen figure's hands coming around the sides of the lion and entering its mouth. The decision to have this, I may talk on another, maybe someday I'll do a whole episode on the journey of deciding to get this tattoo and getting it designed and done and all of that. But for now, suffice to say that the process of choosing the placement, the shape, the iconography of this card, even the location and the time that I would get the tattoo done, all of these things were important considerations for the spell work that I was intending to do, which when I had this card tattooed on my body, the purpose of that was at the time it was aspirational. I had it tattooed onto my right arm in, on the inside facing me. And it was intended as a reminder essentially that this is the kind of strength that i want to embody and for those of you who are not familiar with the iconography of the strength card there typically is like a human figure a woman who's putting her hand in the lion's mouth there's some other symbols that get wrapped up in i personally chose to focus my tattoo on the image of the hands going into the mouth specifically kind of fingers touching the fangs of this lion because to me the purpose of getting this tattoo, the purpose of crafting this spell, was that I wanted to make manifest in my own life and my own spirit, a commitment to understanding this kind of strength and resilience as a form of power. At that time, I think I got this tattoo on my 24th birthday, or actually might have been my 23rd birthday. And at the time, I knew that on a values level, I wanted to feel strong and capable and have a lot of self-trust, but on a real day-to-day level, it was something I was still very much struggling with. And I can remember a point in my life right around my Saturn return, probably unsurprisingly, where I realized that the things that had been aspirational about that tattoo had come to fruition, that the spell that I had cast in getting that tattoo had worked essentially and that I felt no longer like this was aspirational, but descriptive. That this was a description of a way that I move through the world rather than a way that I would like to move through the world, that I aim to move through the world. And that is having the trust in myself, the trust that I have my own back to put my hands in the lion's mouth, take risks in my life and know that I will be okay, not because everything will turn out okay, but because I'm me. And as long as I'm me, I got my own back, and that relationship to an idea of an enduring self has been a very useful one for me and one that I consider very, very precious, especially now on the other side of my Saturn return in this chapter of adulthood. I'm very glad that's something that I chose to to lock in uh, in my early 20s because I feel like it's serving me very well in my later 20s and beyond. So those are five ways of using a key card from a spread in order to make a game plan, figure out something to do in order to actually act on that or call in more of that energy into your life. Before we wrap up today, I'm going to draw a random card on my deck. We have the Seven of Cups here. So for the Seven of Cups, let's run through our list of five strategies and see what we might do for the Seven of Cups. For those of you who are not familiar with the Seven of Cups, it is a card that represents dreams, aspirations, fantasies, things that might never come true, but feel good to think about. Imagining that you could have everything you ever wanted and more, that's what the Seven of Cups evokes in its imagery and its meaning. Now for me, I would typically, now for me, I usually put, if I'm gonna have a key card in a physical place to remember it, I usually put it on my bathroom mirror. For this card though, because the Seven of Cups has so much of a heavy implication with dreams, my bathroom mirror is a place that i look at frequently throughout my day it's one of the first things i see in the morning and i see frequently throughout my day i have another mirror in my room that is set up near my altar space which is where i usually do my winding down bedtime routine activities and because this card is so associated with dreams with fantasies with the unconscious i think i would actually want to place it somewhere near where my bedtime wind down routine is, maybe on the mirror that's near my altar space. Because I actually think that that period of the day and the kind of reflection that I'm in towards the end of my day would be a more fruitful kind of reflection to bring to this card and to what it means. Now option two, if I was going to recreate this card, the Seven of Cups is a great card to do this recreation exercise with because its iconography is typically of Its iconography is typically of seven cups or goblets that are floating in the air. And each one of them has, coming out of it, some different symbol of some different thing. It depends on the deck that you're using, what the actual specific symbols will be. For example, I'm looking at my Spolia deck right now. And I see that the seven of cups contains, let's see, there's one that has a salamander in it. There's one with a piece of coral. There's one with a house in it. I see one with a snake, one with some flowers, one with a skeleton hand, and one full of jewels. If I was going to recreate this, the Seven of Cups is about, again, these fantasies, having everything you ever wanted. And I think it's really telling that in every version of this card that I've seen, there's usually some cups that are full of things that are obviously positive. And there's also cups full of things that are either ambiguous or apparently negative that i think are really interesting to contemplate as i think it can be useful using the seven of cups to depict not just the things that we fantasize about that are positive things we want for ourselves but also our more negative fantasies fantasies either of domination or control fantasies of self-martyrdom and masochism fantasies of retribution or vengeance when this card comes up for my clients, I often tell them some version of, you know, the seven of cups is about the, what would you do with a billion dollars question, right? That the purpose of asking, what would you do with a billion dollars is not to actually plan a budget for a day when you might someday have a billion dollars, right? The purpose is to learn something about yourself by investigating and exploring your desires and your impulses. So if I was going to recreate this card, I would probably recreate the seven cups and spend some time thinking about what I wanted the cups to be filled with, what images I would use to represent specifically my fantasies or the things that I feel like, again, to ask that what would you do with a billion dollar question, right? What's my blank check answer? What's my set of things that I would identify as if I could have anything in the world that I wanted, what would I fill those goblets with? Again, whether or not those are good things or bad things, whether or not they're desires that I actually want to fulfill or feed or acknowledge, not really important. I want to look at just my desire as it actually stands. This is something that comes up all the time too in my work as a sex educator. There's so many people who have sexual fantasies that they feel really confused or disturbed by because they're things they wouldn't want to do in real life. And that's not weird. That's very common and normal. In fact, I would argue a huge part of figuring out how to have the sex life you want is to look at the fantasies of things you don't want to do and figure out, well, what's the fantasy about? What's the core of that fantasy? And how can I get that need met or fulfill that same desire without doing whatever the thing is in the fantasy that I don't want to do, right? So like a really common one is, oh, I fantasize about group sex, but I'm not actually interested in group sex. Well, what is it that interests you? Is that a need that could be fulfilled by using toys with your partner? Is it a need that could be fulfilled by role playing with your partner or by, or by sharing those fantasies together with a partner? Or maybe you do some investigation and realize, huh, the thing that I want about group sex is a sexual encounter that feels like it's all about me. Or maybe a sexual encounter that doesn't feel like it's all about me, where I don't feel like I'm the center of attention I have that pressure taken off. What are things that I can do in my sexual encounters that are one-on-one that can maybe still meet the need that my fantasy and my desire for group sex is articulating? Maybe it's a need for novelty or a desire for novelty that can be met by being more creative and inventive with the kinds of sexual play that I'm doing with my partner? Again, there's a huge variety of ways that you can answer that question. So for now, I'm not actually going to sit here and tell you all what my seven goblets would be full of. And instead, we'll just move on to option number three, meditation. Meditation for this one, I think is also a really powerful cut. Now, because of the things about the iconography that we just mentioned, the fact that all of these goblets are full of different things, they might symbolize different things. I think one way of thinking about this meditation could actually be as a different version of the recreation that we talked about just a second ago. So rather than actually sitting down and drawing seven goblets and drawing the things inside them, laying down, coming into a meditative posture, settling into our bodies, and then taking a moment to contemplate, essentially visualize what is in those cups, and allow your subconscious, your intuition to tell you the answer. If I was doing this meditation for myself, for someone else, I would probably really center around the imagery of water cascading between goblets, and as it fills each goblet, maybe taking some different form to represent whatever that particular fantasy or desire is supposed to be, but I think the imagery and iconography of water, especially water flowing between cups, is a really useful one considering that this is a very watery card that has to do with our irrational, intuitive, subconscious self. If I wanted to take it the next step further into a movement practice, I think the most effective movement practice for something like this would actually be doing something really unstructured and open-ended, putting on some like groovy music and rolling around on the floor for a while, going to the park and allowing yourself to stretch, doing something really simple and freeform, something unstructured that really allows me to expand and relax into my body and into the energy of this card. This also might be a good candidate for doing something like finger painting or getting art supplies and giving yourself the opportunity to just do some free drawing without the pressure of trying to look good or have any sort of audience. As I'm thinking about it, though, I think there's also a bath ritual that I do fairly often that I could pretty easily adapt to be centered around this card. The adapted version would probably look like running a really hot bath for myself and getting seven ramekins and filling them with different kinds of snacks, sweet snacks, salty snacks, crunchy snacks, etc. And lining them up on the edge of the bathtub so that I can soak and feel just absolutely as indulgent as possible. You know, Light candles, put flower petals in the water, really anything that I can think of to make the experience as luxurious and as royal as I can possibly imagine. That might actually be a really effective physiological, somatic, and sensory practice for, again, embodying the energy of this card. The energy of fantasy, of indulgence, of daydream. And that would actually dovetail very nicely into option five. This card in particular is one that I would be very cautious about doing spell work with because it is a card that is so much about our internal, messy, intuitive, emotional selves. And generally speaking, as witches, it's important that before we do any kind of manifesting work, we have our intuition shit together. Right? If we're going to use our manifestation to take the internal stuff that we have and make it external, we have a responsibility to make sure that we really understand our internal worlds and we understand why we want things and what we want them for and what we think might actually happen, not what we want to happen if those things were to come to pass. So for the Seven of Cups in particular, this is a card that is specifically about things that have value because they don't come to pass, right? Things that have value that are not in the real world but exist in the realm of our fantasy. So if I was going to do some kind of spell work around that, I would probably not be trying to manifest some desire. It's more likely that I would, along with the ritual, maybe instead of just having snacks, to enjoy having seven seven herbs or essential oils or flower essences seven crystals things that I can use to either anoint my body place on my body hold in my hands and use all of these things in a spell work context in order to essentially anoint this vessel anoint my body with energetic tools to help me feel safe and secure enough to go into this realm of fantasy and daydream without feeling overwhelmed or bowled over by the intensity of how vulnerable it is to want things if you're a person who finds it very uncomfortable and very difficult to want things then a spell around the seven of cups might look like creating a ritual a seven-part anointing process, substances, smells, resources, whatever those are that you like to use in your practice, that for you signify either protection or cleansing or whatever the protection or cleansing or radiance or whatever the thing is, grace, hope, potential, will help to soften the space that you're in Enough for you to be vulnerable, enough to want things. And hey, maybe that is seven snacks. (laughs) Maybe seven snacks is the thing that will be helpful in that ritualized context. For creating that safe space but I think in general if I was going to do any spell work with this card it'd probably be more on those lines as opposed to say doing some kind of candle magic with the card and trying to manifest something and so with that we've come to the end of our five options now I know that I said that these are five options but of course in case it wasn't clear already they're not mutually exclusive options you can do one you can do many you can do none you might find that you have spreads where there is no key card or signifier for you to pull out and use for some of these strategies, and that's totally okay too. If you are someone who either has used these strategies or strategies similar to them before, or if you try them out after listening to this episode, I would love, love, love to hear your thoughts, your experiences, your advice, and your insight. If you would like to share those things, you can go to ondeck.halen.co, where you'll find a link to submit either a text to submit where you'll find a link, either to send an email submission or to send in a voice memo submission that might be read or played on a future episode. So now as we come to the end of this week's podcast, I want to thank you all again for being such ride or dies here at the beginning of this podcast tenure. I'm hoping next week will be the first week that I have intro music and outro music, fingers crossed. Hopefully I won't regret saying that, but I do think that'll be sorted out by next week. And of course, if you have any ideas, any suggestions, requests for things that you think Would make the show better or more useful again thank you so much to those of you who have already sent your feedback and or your support don't forget to follow me on instagram if you don't already at halen.co join the mailing list to stay updated on everything i'm working on and subscribe to the show if you haven't already subscribed to the show so that you can be the first to get it in your feed next tuesday when it drops Don't forget that you can find everything you need to know about me, about the show, and about my work on the show's website, www.ondeck.halen.co. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and I will talk to you all again next week.